Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kanal, still your host. Um, and today we are honored to have Professor Jennifer Lawless um, on the show here. Uh, nothing I say can really speak uh, to your accomplishments and, and your incredible career you've had, uh, you know, on our political discourse, women's rights um, and the rule of law. But we do appreciate you taking the time to come out. I will highlight a couple of the things you've done for the viewers. Uh, just to give them a sense of, of how this interview is going to go. Um, you are a Commonwealth professor of politics at the University of Virginia. Um, shout out to UVA. Please accept my college application. It will be coming in very, very shortly. Um, you were a former professor of government at American University, um, and you were actually director of the Women's and Politics Institute there, which is uh, phenomenal. Um, you are also an assistant uh, professor at Brown University, which is a great color, by the way, I might just add. Um, you're also the author of six books. I mean, you're the co-editor in chief of the American Journal of Politics. You're a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, you have a BA in political science and an MA and PhD from Stanford University. Um, and you were also a political candidate in 2006 in Rhode Island's second congressional district. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to come out today. Of course, I'm happy to. Of course, thank you so much. So yeah, let's dive into these questions. All right, um, just for our viewers, um, talk a little bit about your background um, and how you got started in all this education and politics and you know the intersection of it all. Um, so yeah, let's start with that. Sure, so my main area of research is women in politics and in particular, why we have so few women holding positions of political power. We tend to think about high profile women like Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris. And we think, oh, well, life is good. We have women in top positions of leadership and they're on the front page of the newspaper. You can Google them and you can get millions and millions of hits. But the reality is that our political systems are still overwhelmingly dominated by men. And that's the case at the federal level, it's the case at the state level, it's even in the case um, at the local level. The overwhelming majority of mayors and city councilors are men. So I've always been interested in that question. And in particular, why it is, given that study after study and election cycle after election cycle, we find that women are just as likely as men to win when they run for office. And so the research that I conducted for my dissertation when I was at Stanford, several of the books that I've written, a survey that I'm in the process of conducting now, tries to get at this question of political ambition and the gender gap in political ambition and why it is that women and men who look the same on paper aren't equally likely to think about running for office, to throw their hats into the ring and ultimately to do it. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in a political system that mirrors what our population looks like. People have diverse backgrounds, they have different experiences, and we can get better representation if we have women and men, people of color, um, people with different socioeconomic backgrounds who are providing their perspective and helping to lead our cities, our states, and our nation. So understanding systematic barriers to that is basically something that's always been really important to me. And the first time I remember really caring about this was when I was in 11th grade and mm. Clarence Thomas was being appointed to the Supreme Court. Oh. And the Judiciary Committee was conducting these hearings and Anita Hill came forward and said that he had sexually harassed her. And I remember watching this all-male Judiciary Committee grilling Anita Hill and thinking something fundamentally doesn't sit well with me when it comes to that. And, and at that point, the question about, well, why are there no women on this committee just sort of took on a life of its own. And that's how I've spent the last 30 years. 
Well, I'd say you did a lot in the last 30 <laughs> years. Um, and I think you'll be glad to hear, I am actually currently running and on four separate female candidate-led um, campaigns here in the Bay Area, um, one for district attorney, one for sheriff, one for state assembly, and one uh, for Oakland mayor. So um, trust me, we, we do plenty out here on this side of the coast. That is true. California has always been a leader when it comes to getting more women elected to office. Of course. Um, it's our prerogative, I think. Um, also, I want to ask you, you've had so much you know, educational experience and background. How has that prepared you for kind of the roles you do today? You are an educator at a university. Um, has, has, has that really been the forefront of how you, you discuss these things? Well, I think running for Congress in 2006 helped a lot because as you probably know, as some of your viewers know, academics can sometimes be a little bit dry. They can sometimes get stuck in the weeds. They can sometimes yeah. lose sight of the practical importance of the questions that they're answering. Mm -hmm. And when you run for office, you don't have the luxury to do any of those things. You have like 30 seconds with a voter and you have to convince them to vote for you. You have to convince them of what issues matter the most. Mm -hmm. you and some to vote at all and to get involved in politics. And so I think meshing those two experiences, a background in academia, but also running for Congress myself, allowed me, I hope, to communicate these kinds of um, discussions, these kinds of issues in a way that is important, but also interesting. And, you know, so I, I don't really think about just having one background. I think both of those backgrounds have allowed me to get out and talk to receptive audiences about why we need more women in politics, why young people need to get involved in politics, why women's rights are critical for, you know, global global health. And so, you know, across the board, I, I think it's been both of those backgrounds and experiences that have really shaped the way I approach these things. Yeah, yeah. The next time one of my teachers says, you have to stay in class, you can't go to a campaign event or something, I'm just going to have them, I'm going to give them your number and just say, call her. Have them call, have them yeah. call. send a text. Exactly. <laughs> I swear I'm going to do it. Um, so uh, let's talk about your, your campaign. Campaigning is kind of my expertise on the show. Um, what were the policy objectives, your, your agenda as a candidate? Uh, you know, I love to have candidates on the show. I've had many. Um, and, and why did you run you know, what, what compelled you to kind of take that step um, after, after having such a, such a distinguished career? Um, well, it basically came down to the fact that I had just written this book about why women don't run for office. Mm -hmm. and one of the main reasons was that they didn't think they're qualified, right? So women who look exactly the same on paper as men are more likely to express doubts and not think that they have what it takes to enter the arena. And so that was very fresh in my mind. And the incumbent in Rhode Island's second congressional district at the time, it was a heavily, it, it is a heavily democratic district. Right. Um, but he's, he was ardently anti-choice. Uh, he oh. was not doing anything to end the war in Iraq. He had demonstrated time and again that he just didn't really respect the right to privacy in general. Mm. And no people willing to run against him because he was an entrenched incumbent. And there were no women, there were no men, there was nobody willing to say, you know what? This is just not okay. The, the representative of this district should actually be representing the voters in this district and share the policy beliefs of the voters. Mm. And I had students at Brown at the time who had just graduated, um, who were planning to go to law school, and who said that if I threw my own hat into the ring, they would delay law school. They would defer for two years and spend all of their time working on this campaign. 
And so with the idea of this infrastructure in place, I figured, how can I say no? I'm at the point right now where I've just spent hundreds and hundreds of pages encouraging more women to run for office. Here's a perfect opportunity. I have the credentials. I should do it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did. And I lost, which is unfortunate. But, um, you know, I got 40% of the vote. Yeah, you didn't do too bad. Not at all. We definitely outperformed expectations. Yeah. And, you know, I think it mattered a lot. It sent a signal that a political outsider could do better than a lot of people expected. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also moderated his voting record on several issues. And so, you know, I think it was a win-win. That wasn't why I got into the race. I got into the race to win. I wanted to be in Congress. (laughs) Still find that an incredibly appealing goal. Um, But if you lose and you're able to make positive change along the way, that's nothing to sneeze at either. Yeah, no, it's still, still a great accomplishment. To run for office, I mean... I've seen it on the back end. It's it's not easy. And anybody who really takes up that mantle is is putting a lot of shit on their back, you know, a lot of shit. And you, you, it's great. Yeah, I commend you for I that. I mean, what I what I always say to people is that, you know, it's your name on the signs. And so really the buck stops with you. But yeah. the way that I always explain it is, you know, imagine every single day crashing a wedding, you know, that you weren't invited to and then every guest there and introducing yourself. And that's what it's like, right? Like no one's that interested in the campaign as much as you are. Voters are generally nice, but they don't really want to have long conversations with you while they're doing something else. But anytime that you meet somebody, that's what you have to do. And um, at first I thought it was very intimidating and it takes about two weeks to realize that anyone can do it. Um, You know, if you're, if, if you believe that you're going to be the best representative, just go out there and do it. It takes no time to acquire thick skin and it takes no time to acquire campaign skills. Yeah, no, and you always have to ask for money. Constantly, <laughs> that, that, constantly. Always money. Um, and I guess after that, you 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 still continue to being an educator. Um, why kind of take that um, and, and keep going with it? Um, um, I mean, I always thought that I, well, first I should note that I was a professor at Brown while I was running. They don't pay you to run for office. So yeah. unless you're independently wealthy and I'm not, uh, you know, you have to have a job at the same time. So I never gave up being a professor. But um, I always thought that I would run for office again. This was in 2006. And then in 2009, the Women in Politics Institute at American University called and asked if I was interested in applying for the directorship. And at that point, it was clear that the incumbent that I had not defeated was less vulnerable than he had even been you know, two years earlier. The Democrats had taken back control of the House. And so he wasn't casting votes that would put him in a bad position or anything. Mm. And I could stay in Rhode Island and wait for him to retire, maybe, and seek that seat again. And P.S., he's still in Congress, so it would have been a long, long wait. Wow. Or I could go to D.C. and try to close the gender gap in political leadership by running this institute that would train hundreds and hundreds of women and young and girls to get involved in politics. And so that's what I did. And it was terrific. And I felt like when my work there was done, I moved on to UVA. Right. Yeah, no, it's still pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain. Um, now you're a champion, like you said, you're a champion and advocate of women in politics. What you see happening in Afghanistan right now? I actually one of my very one of my dear friends, Aisha Wahab. She was on CNN last night. Um, she is the first um, Afghan elected woman right here in Hayward, California. She was giving her perspective. She's great. Shout out to her. Uh, but what are your thoughts on, on what's going on in Afghanistan right now in regards to women's rights? Oh, well, I mean, obviously it's incredibly disappointing and tragic and 
difficult to watch. I think that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that Afghanistan is not that unusual. There are many, many nations around the world where women's rights are just not a thing. I think what's particularly disappointing and why it's so um, why these images are so powerful right now is because over the course of the last 20 years, there were such substantial gains that women made. There are women serving in the Afghan government. There are women who went out and were educated and became, you know, doctors and lawyers. And now it's that chipping away at those rights, um, you know, that that we're not accustomed to seeing. And so what I, you know, I, I just feel it, it's it's horrible, um, but I, I do encourage people not to lose sight of the fact that this is only one place where that's the situation. And you know, Hillary Clinton in 1995 said women's rights are human rights, and human right human rights are women's rights, and we're still not at that point globally. Um, you know, I think that a lot of democracies and democratic leaders believe that, and that's fundamentally true. But women's rights are often the last ones to get recognized and the first to go. And what we're seeing in Afghanistan is a perfect example of that. Right. And kind of following that that idea, women, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley-ish, um, <laughs> depending on where you look on a map. Um, women here, you know, generally enter and exit immediately because it's a very toxic environment. You know, it's obviously built on 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 certain ideals that, you know, you and I may, <laughs> may vehemently disagree with. Um, and it's very toxic. And, and being on Capitol Hill, um, where women are also entering, um, you know, are they also exiting imminently? You know, for example, you know, AOC getting verbally assaulted like a year ago, that was a big national news story. You know, what are the insights of women in politics right now when we see more women rising up and, and taking on that responsibility? Well, so here's the good news. The good news is that not only are women just as likely as men to win elections when they run, not only are they just as able to raise money, but generally speaking, they're treated very similarly too. Now, I don't want to say that there are no examples of explicit sexism or misogyny or discrimination. Of course there are. But when you look systematically at what women's experiences are generally when they enter the political arena, they don't look that different than men's. And that's because of partisanship, actually. You know, we spend all of our time saying that party polarization is all the Democrats and the Republicans can't get along. Everybody's part of a team and these teams, <laughs> you know, incentive to cooperate. But the upside to that is that in politics, your most salient identity is whether there's a D or an R in front of your name, not whether there's the presence or the absence of a Y chromosome. And so what that means is that even card carrying sexists who hate women are going to still vote for them if they share the party label. They're going to still defend them as members of their team. They're going to still believe that they're better able to represent than men who don't have their party affiliation, right? And so as a result, in a lot of other male-dominated environments like law or business or technology, there isn't this layer of partisanship that sort of levels the playing field. It changes the cleavage of where, where competition takes place. And so that's generally a positive thing. But again, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't high, high profile examples of very, very bothersome and worrisome sexism, or that at the end of the day, you know, the Republican Party, for example, decides they're not, they're going to throw Liz Cheney under the bus, or, you know, the Democrats aren't going to spend as much time defending some of their female members as they might otherwise. But, um, but generally speaking, compared to other male-dominated professions, and this is sort of surprising to a lot of people, um, politics is actually, uh, I would say, toward the top of the list in terms of equity and equality among those who have already gotten into the system. Wow. I didn't know, you know, 
at the local level here where, where, where I try to play a hand, a role in a lot, I try to look past the D and the R because, you know, reaching across the aisle, community service is about representing a constituency, right? Just like you ran for office. It's about representing the folks who are going to vote for you. And as long as you have their hearts in mind and, and their policies in your head, um, you know, you have my support. But at that very national federal level, uh, you know, the, the polarization takes over. Um, it does. But, you know, something else that's important is that it's not necessarily inconsistent with what you just said in that it's not a good thing. But our federal districts, our congressional districts are so gerrymandered and rigged. <laughs> they're like almost all the same party anyway. They're just not competitive. Right. So if you're a Republican and you're doing a good job representing your district, you're basically representing almost all Republicans. And the same is true on the Democratic side. Um, you know, 25 years ago, a third of the congressional districts across the country were genuinely competitive. Like you didn't know whether a D or an R would win in, in you know, 150 districts. Now it's 12 to 15 districts that are really up for grabs. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's problematic because we've gotten to the point where these districts don't necessarily make sense geographically, mm-hmm. but in terms of this representational relationship, there aren't that many places where a majority, at the congressional level anyway, where a majority of voters are sort of out of sync with the person who represents them. Right. Yeah. Gerrymandering is a thing. Um, and, and, you know, the new census data came out. So, so we're all waiting for that going into the 2022 primaries where I'm going to be um, specifically to run some campaigns. Uh, but let's go back to 2020. Um, let's, let's take a, let's go in some hindsight. Um, the 2020 election. Um, your thoughts, initial thoughts, and then we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. Just 2020 in general. Uh, I mean, I thought that it was incredibly powerful to see a nation, first of all, rise up and turn out to vote like we haven't seen, you know, in, in decades. Mm-hmm. So to sort of say that what was ushered in in 2016 was not acceptable. In 2016, a lot of people said, well, I didn't know what I was voting for. I didn't know. You know, I'm not sexist. I'm not racist. I'm not classist. I voted for Donald Trump because he cares about taxes. Right. Or, you know, we needed change. And my feeling at the time was that maybe. But at some point, if you're electing somebody who behaves in a way that is sexist or racist, there's blood on your hands. Right. At at some point, you have to be held responsible for that. And I think in 2020, we saw people say, you know what, I'm not going to be held responsible for that. I'm going to get up and vote and I'm going to vote for somebody else. And that's not to say that Trump voters all of a sudden decided to vote for, you know, Joe Biden. But it is to say that that small sliver of voters who regretted voting for Donald Trump didn't do it again. And that was enough to, you know, shift the the political outcome. And the number of votes that Joe Biden was able to get, the number of votes that Donald Trump was able to get, suggests that this was really an election that, you know, featured a very, very vibrant democracy, which is why I find it completely ironic and ridiculous that we're spending so much time talking about whether it was a legitimate election and whether it was rigged and whether there was fraud. We finally have the levels of turnout that scholars and practitioners have been talking about and aspiring to. And, you know, it's seen as somehow illegitimate. So that's very, very disappointing. But if you look at just the raw numbers and if you look at what those voters represented, um, I think it's hard to walk away disappointed from that outcome. For both parties. I like to say that mm-hmm. a lot. You look at the vote counts on both. It was like 75 and it, it wasn't that far off. It, it's, it's beneficial to both parties to come out and vote. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I like to see. 
but it's funny, you know, in history, they say the pendulum, you know, always switches, it, you know, it comes up, comes down just a little bit. Um, and I think this was just a, one of those conservative reactions into an isolationist period in the United States. I mean, I've studied American history for a little bit, not as much as you have, but, you know, just a little bit. Um, and and I, that's that's kind of my analysis on what happened in 2016. That's what got me activated. You know, I became an activist after that. So that election really, really, you know, energized the youth, in, in my opinion, at least around me. Um, yeah, and I think there was also a component of racism, right, that was more, um, it, in 2016, it seemed a little bit more subtle than what it became over the course of the next four years, but this general sense of like, well, we had Barack Obama for eight years, like, it's right. now to get our ducks back in a row, right? like, let's not get crazy, and now they want a woman, like, that's nuts, right, so, right. like, <laughs> turn to normal, um, and, right. and then I, you know, and then I think that there were a lot of people who weren't expecting the right. presidency to unfold the way that it did. Yeah, or at least enter into a global pandemic. That's still going on, by the way. Yeah. Um, all right, now I'm gonna ask you a very simple question. There's only one right answer. Um, is voting important? It is. Wow, wow. <laughs> yes. Wow, you can write a book about that right there. That's a book. Uh, no, but if you do, you can elaborate on that just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think voting is important for a couple of reasons. The first is that for whether we like it or not, the reality is that candidates and elected officials care about what voters think a lot more than they care about what people think. Mm -hmm. So they want to do the things that the people who will hold them accountable want them to do, which means that if you don't vote, your voice may very well not be represented. Now, it might be if you're, you know, if, if you're somebody who's educated and middle-aged and just was too busy to turn out that day, there were lots of, there are lots of educated middle-aged people who turn out to vote. And so you might share those people's preferences and you might not be um, underrepresented to the same extent. But the reality is there are systematic biases in terms of who actually does turn out. And we know young people are less likely than older people to turn out. We know that people who don't have higher, you know, uh, that your socioeconomic status is correlated with your likelihood of turning out to vote. We know that if you have skills that can help you generate political knowledge, that can help you follow the news, that are sort of correlated with your overall political interest, you're more likely to turn out to vote. And we also know that all of those people have different preferences on key policies than other people. So if you want your voice represented, you've got to, you've got to vote. The other reason that I would say that it matters is because voting becomes a habitual activity. If you do it once, you're far more likely to do it. Do again. it again. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so dipping your toe into that water initially opens your whole world up to organizations contacting you and sharing with you ways that you could get involved with them. It opens your world to issues that you might want to rally around or care about. It opens the door to ultimately running for office one day if you want to do it yourself. And so, you know, I just think that it's it's not just about civic duty. It's about being an engaged citizen. Yeah, which I think... Um... I think should be inherent upon us. You know, we, we live in a democracy. We, we like to say that we're all democratic and we spread our ideals in every country we can and, and impose our beliefs. But if we're, we're such hypocrites, I mean, God, damn, we're such hypocrites. Um, well, I mean, and the other thing I would note too, is with voter turnout, you know, so we hear a lot about the presidential level and usually we're at least yeah. at a 50%. Then you get to congressional elections, 35, 40%. Right. 
when you get down to primaries, though, in my primary, when I ran for Congress, voter turnout was less than 10%, less than 10% in a congressional primary, right? So 90% of the people that I met on the campaign trail didn't even bother to turn out. At the local level, there are school board elections across this country mm. where voter turnout is three or 4%. There are literally thousands of school districts where candidates run unopposed or there are no candidates. They can't even fill the seats that do exist. So, you know, we have 500,000 elected offices in this country. We're asking voters to send people to occupy them. Mm-hmm. And only 12 people show up. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine that we're going to get the best candidates that we can get as compared to an entire nation making their own assessments and providing their evaluations of who's on the ballot. Right. And like I said, local politics is where you, you can really feel it. You can touch, you know, you can, uh, you know, inhale the impact of what you're making um, because, you know, calling your city council, calling your mayor, your school board, you know, et cetera, um, makes a difference. Trust me. Um, highly encourage that. Now I'm going to ask you another question kind of pertains to youth um, in, in the United States. Should, you know, I'm 17. I will be voting in my first election next year, pre-registered, so don't grill me. You know, I'm already there. Um, should we allow 16, 17-year-olds the right to vote in their school board elections, in their municipal races, or just give them the full right to vote in, in all elections and introduce that at an early age so it, they can carry on that habitual cycle? No. <laughs> um, I think it's really, really important that we socialize kids to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. And- and I think pre-registering to vote is a great idea. Mm-hmm. I totally support civic education that makes it a requirement for high school students to somehow get engaged in their communities, whether it be in politics or community service. Mm-hmm. I encourage every parent to take their kids to vote. I encourage every parent to you know, put up a lawn sign and explain to their kids what that sign represents, to watch the mm-hmm. news, to read the newspaper, all these things. It becomes tricky. Um, when you think about expanding the franchise though, for a couple of reasons, right? Citizen, full legal rights and citizenship in most cases kick in at 18. Um, You're often living in your parents' house till you're 18. They're your legal guardians until you're 18. So first of all, there's this like coercion piece, right? Like, are they gonna actually tell you who you're gonna vote for? Is there gonna be um, pressure? But there's also, I think, there's this general independence. Like when you become an independent person, when you're 18, when you are eligible to serve in the armed forces, when you're eligible to own a gun, when you actually have autonomy over these kinds of policies that apply to you, then I certainly think that you should have that that right to vote. Now, my caveat would be that if you're an emancipated 16-year-old or 17-year-old and you're on your own, yes, you should have that right to vote. But, um, you know, I I don't think that there's a fundamental change you know, I, I don't I don't think that there's I don't think that 16 and 17 year olds are systematically excluded from participating in the political system simply because they can't cast a ballot until they're 18. Um, I do think it's incumbent upon parents and teachers and organizations to engage those students in every other way that they possibly can so that when they turn 18, it's just obvious that they're going to go vote and also stay more more politically right. engaged. So I guess you're you're advocating for more of an education um, reform towards civic engagement than actually giving them that right to vote. Yeah, I mean, I, I I also think a part of me is practical, and it's constitutional amendments are virtually impossible to pass. Um, <laughs> right. You know, getting getting eighteen year olds to be able to vote was quite a coup initially. So. Right. 
know, reducing it uh, even below that, given that when you're less than 18, you're still, you know, pretty dependent, I just think is probably a non-starter. But I, I certainly don't think it's an excuse to keep, um, I don't think it's a legitimate way or reason or there's any logic for keeping young people out of the political system. Yeah, yeah. I think the the one, what I would like to see, you know, whatever that may merit is, you know, school board elections, like like we were talking about. I think school boards, the folks who are deciding their textbooks, their curriculums, I think students should have a voice on there. And not to say that most school board districts I know of have a student representative, but when, when a school board is making decisions that I know are going to heavily impact, um, you know, those students, I think they should have a say. And I want school board candidates and members to come and speak to students because that doesn't happen too often. Last time I saw a school board member at a school was like never. Um, so, you know, understand your constituency, understand what you're fighting for. Um, and I think that's a well, I think it's yeah. also really important that, you know, students encourage their parents to vote in these school board elections. Right. That talked and that schools themselves, you know, talk to students about what's at stake. You know, school board school boards are obviously playing a role in issues that have a lot more to do with just the curriculum. Right. You know, school districts are funded by property taxes. The school boards are often, uh, you know, interrelated in terms of working with the mayor of a town and the city council. And so it's not just about the issues that are affecting what's going on in the classroom, but certainly funding is a key, key issue. Um, and, you know, it, even if students themselves can't vote in these elections, they can certainly attend them and they can go to these meetings and they can be active participants. Uh, and that matters because their parents can vote in these elections and these members of school boards want to get reelected. True that. Um, now, let's talk about Georgia. <laughs> this might be a decent conversation. Um, Georgia, Texas, we see these states enacting voter suppression laws and and voting rights restrictions as as kind of some may say it was a reaction to 2020. Some may argue it's been happening more than that since like 2013. You know, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on currently in the more conservative states? Um, and how do we counteract that? I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election systematically across the country or in Georgia or Arizona or, or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan or any of these states. Um, what happened was it was actually easier for people to vote, both because of legislative changes uh, in Georgia in particular that Stacey Abrams, you know, helped usher in, but also because of COVID. You know, the one upside to a global pandemic is that it creates incentives for there to be no excuse absentee ballots for there to be long right, right. I never thought I'd hear early that. voting I never thought I'd hear that sentence the one incentive of a global pandemic yeah you know silver lining yeah. um and so you know it, it it was easier and we saw we've know we've long known and studies have long shown that the fewer barriers you have to voting the higher level of turnout so Oregon for example for years has been doing all male voting and their voter turnout is usually upwards of 70%. The more restrictive uh, states' laws are, so Mississippi, for example, has particularly restrictive laws. You know, you have to get, you have to have an excuse that's certified for getting an absentee ballot. There's no early voting. Um, you have to show ID. You know, th that it can cut voter turnout in half. And so what we saw in 2020 was what it would look like if many of these states adopted the kinds of progressive voter legislation that have that make it easier for people to turn out to vote. And, you know, there was no evidence of fraud. There was just evidence of 
higher engagement and higher turnout. And Republicans don't like it. Republicans don't like it because in those in the places where there was much greater voter turnout and a lot of new voters, a lot of those new voters were young, young people disproportionately register as Democrats. Um, a lot of those new voters were people of color, people of color disproportionately register as Democrats. Now, that's not to say that that would be it. You know, they could actually say we want to enfranchise as many people as we can, and they could go identify all of the Republicans that are not currently registered to voter that don't regularly turn out and get them to the polls too, but that's harder. And so, you know, I think there's this general tension between the two parties um, and the Democrats want to support broad voting reform that makes it easier to vote because generally that works to their benefit and the Republicans don't. And saying that fraud and concerns about um, unfair elections uh, to them, that's a more compelling reason to push back against some of this openness rather than saying, well, we're concerned about losing elections. Right. Yeah, no, I think just open it up. Everybody gets a ballot. Let's see what happens. I think that's a great exercise. Um, yeah, just give a one-year-old, you know, here's your ballot. Where, where did you want to screw? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, shout out to Stacey Abrams, by the way. Love to have you on the show. Um, now let, let's talk about kind of your career going into 2021 and 2022. And do you have any aspirations to run for office again? I would love to run for office again, but no time soon. Um, oh, my a little bit full right now. So, uh, but teaching the teaching the future generations of America, teaching the future generations of America, writing books, chairing a department, editing a journal. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, being obsessed with CNN, like all of these. <laughs> Same. Um, yeah, but um, no, I would I would love to do it again. It was the most meaningful thing that I've ever done. I've always thought that I would do it again. I still feel that way. Um, I don't think that there's any way to adequately explain to people what it feels like to have conversations with voters and understand that you're literally the person that can help them have a better life, right? You can help them. You, you can help enact policies that will enable them to get medication and put food on the table. You can enable policies that will ensure that their heating bills won't be so astronomical that they have to decide between a trip to the grocery store and paying for heat. You can be the person to decide or shape sort of U.S. foreign policy and whether we should be, you know, nation building or not. Across the board, you can just you can help determine whether we should have federal voting rights legislation or whether we should codify Roe v. Wade. You know, across the board, there are all of these issues that matter so much to individuals and, and you're the conduit. And the other thing that was really, really important to me and, you know, I just found incredibly powerful was that most people never meet a candidate and most people have never had a conversation with somebody running for office. And, you know, they, they might not agree with you, they might not vote for you, but there is this general respect for people who put themselves out there. And I wasn't expecting that. And it was, it was amazing. Right. Yeah. No, when you're out canvassing and the candidate is there and you're at the door and, and they're like, Oh, who is this? I'm like, Oh, she, she, you know, she's right over there. You want to go say hi? It's, it's that kind of, I did that this weekend. It was, it was a great experience, you know, mm -hmm. um, talking to voters, understanding them. It's kind of what I, what I guess we live for that. Um, mm -hmm. Now in closing, you know, I'm a youth technically. I'm an old soul though, so maybe I'm excluded from this conversation. Um, 
you know, particularly for Gen Z, never know where they got Z from. Where, um, what is your advice to us? You know, going in, we're the next graduating class, we're coming up, we're being voters. Some of us are engaged, some of us aren't. Some of us are alienated, exhausted, don't have time for that shit. You know, shout out to Danny Glover. Um, what is your advice as an academic, as a former candidate, um, as somebody who's a political scientist who studies this? I mean, I would say you can sleep later. <laughs> I mean, that's my that's my general feeling about it. Now, I, I mean that I don't mean to sound like you know cute on that front. Like I understand that people are going through difficult times and that they're struggling, and that the pandemic has made it even more complicated, and that young people have more on their plate now and more responsibilities, mm-hmm. especially given this pandemic than mm-hmm. uh, you know than a lot of previous generations have. But getting involved in politics is one way to help alleviate that additional burden. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to have time to volunteer for a campaign. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to have time to become, you know, a political junkie and follow every single race. But it certainly means that people can register to vote. It means that they can turn out to vote. And it means that they can realize that sometimes you're going to lose an election. And that doesn't mean that you should disengage. Right. Like, so I don't think it was until. So the first election that I voted in, Mm -hmm. I don't think one candidate that I voted for top to the bottom of the ballot won. Second time around, um, I was I was more successful in terms of who I chose. But I mean, I've voted for losers way, way more often than I voted for winners. And that doesn't mean that you pack up your bags and you quit when your candidate doesn't make it into the, the office. It means that you work harder and that you do more to help candidates that you would really support. And so, you know, I would say that it's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon and there are ebbs and flows. And you know, the political climate will change and the pendulum will swing. And you might be disappointed with the things that the way that things are going right now, regardless of whether, you know, what side of the aisle you're on. But um, you can be the you can be an agent to help change that. And so, you know, I would say get involved. And the one other thing I would say, especially to this generation, is I understand that you like your devices and that you do all your communicating online and digitally. And but reality is that. Um, you know, actually going to a rally or attending a protest or meeting a candidate or knocking on a voter's door, if you have the ability to do that, it's actually very, very meaningful. That's not to say that you shouldn't call and text and send messages and, you know, do whatever else you do to get these candidates elected in a very 21st century kind of way. But old school political participation uh, is invigorating. And there's something about it, I think, that is contagious. And so I always tell my students to go out and do something that actually involves meeting a real life person and leaving their room. Uh, and so I would encourage young people to, to do that too, because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Um, one thing I would like to follow up is how do we, you know, I'm a obsessively, I think, <laughs> of, you know, uh, you know, engaged youth. How do we kind of not burn out? as youth you know i i've actually ran several campaigns lost most of them majority like you said we lose you know when you're when you're fighting for certain policies that seem alien but you lose um how do we not burn out in the i don't think i mean i i don't think that it has to be um the only thing you do right i mean there are people who become uh political consultants who run campaigns or who do politics as a career mm-hmm. but I think that something that students often find helpful is to think about it as just an important hobby or an important 
you know, side thing that you're responsible for that you're engaged with, but isn't your entire life. Like when you're 17 or 18 or 19, you shouldn't know exactly what it is that you want to do. You should have time in your life to try a few different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Important to me that politics is on the list so that we have tons and tons of young people out there, at least giving it a shot and seeing what it's like. But I would encourage all those political junkies to try something else as well. And if you're a little bit more well-rounded, you're a little bit less burnt out. And this is coming from somebody who basically has a CNN IV in her arm at all times. I mean, burnt out. Um, I'm I'm just trying to help the next generation not replicate my own mistakes. Yeah, yeah, that's sound advice, (laughs) I think. I gotta, I I don't know exactly what I'm gonna do, uh, but it's gonna be cool, I'll tell you that. I'm sure it will. Um, But yes, no, before before we log off, is there anything you'd like to add? I would, I would just add that, you know, we, we tend to spend so much time talking about the downside to politics and the vitriol and the animosity and the hatred and the fighting and the polarization, but it's through conventional political processes that anything good happens as well. And, you know, so I would just encourage people to think about the community center that operates in their town or think about the new teachers that the district was able to hire or think about the new legislation that makes it easier to vote. Um, and realize that those are all political accomplishments as well. So, you know, for every for every negative, there's at least one positive, and it's our political system that makes the world go around. Yes, and the reform that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yes, no, thank you so much uh, for, for for a great time and, and a fantastic interview. Um, is there is there any way folks can catch up on you, stay updated on what you do? You want to link your Twitter? I'll, I'll I'll have it in the description. Yeah. So. Uh, Twitter is a good way to do that. And then also through um, the University of Virginia, our political science department, our politics department website highlights all the work that we're doing. Um, My colleagues and I are obviously very, very concerned about campaigns and elections and public opinion and what's going on domestically and globally. So that's a great resource. Yes. And it's mandatory that anybody who comes on the show has to follow me back on Twitter. Um, So that's that's definitely going to (laughs) happen. Uh, you're always more than welcome to come back and, and, and you know, we'll, we'll pick your brain a little bit, but thank you so much for taking the time um, and, and giving your giving us your thoughts. Oh, it was great. Best 47 minutes I've spent all day. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Professor. Have a great day. You too.